0: A number of you will know well that I like sports, and I, uh, I love to play sports, I, I love to watch sports. A month or so ago, a number of you were present with me when we watched the final night of the Premier League. Manchester City and Liverpool were playing at the same time, and it was one of those rare times when the outcomes of both games affected Who would be the champion? City City went in one point ahead, and if they won their game or if they tied their game and Liverpool tied or lost their game, City would be the champions. There was much at stake. And what happened? Shockingly, City went down. Two goals, and there was only about 20 minutes left to play, and at the same time, Liverpool was tied. Some of us were trying to watch both. It appeared that all would be lost for City, which you were all rooting for, those of you who like soccer. I was dejected, hopeless, and then suddenly, six of the greatest minutes of sports I've seen in a long time, one goal, two goals, three goals. City against all odds, went ahead, and they pulled it off. And it was epic. We were, I was cheering, was especially blessed because there were Liverpool fans present in my living room when this happened. I want you to imagine something, those of you that like sports as much as I do. Imagine we watched that game together the next day. I know the score. You don't. I go in knowing the score. And we start watching that game, and the disaster that appeared to be begins to unfold, and I'm just sitting there confident. confident. I have no idea how this is going to happen or what's going to happen, but I know the score. And as the disaster unravels, I'm not sweating it a bit. I go down. Doesn't appear they'll come back. Then all of a sudden they score their goals. And through the entire process, though I didn't know how it would happen, I was unfazed, confident until the very end. You watched me and you laughed and thought I was a fool. When you know what the end will be, it changes everything about how you live through the present. Everything about how you live to the present. That is the main theme of 2 Peter. And I want that to be driven deep into your bones as we come to the very end of this short but precious little letter. This morning, we're finishing this book, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18. This is an apostle who knows the end of his life is near. And he also knows that the end of the world, however long until it comes, is near and will come suddenly. And he wants us, like someone who's watching a game, who already knows the outcome, to live totally different lives in view of the end. Second Peter 3. Let's read these last verses together, 11 through 18. Amen. Here's the main point. Live in this world in view of the world to come. Live in this world in view of the world to come. How now shall we live? Live for what lasts and live for the Lord's coming. That's Peter's two points in this text. Let's begin by saying, live for what lasts. Live for what lasts, verses 11 through 13. We've seen this again and again in this book. What we believe about the end, or in this case, what the false teachers do not believe about the end, what we believe will affect how we live in the present now, right before this text, if you look at verse 10, Peter's just said, heavenly bodies will be burned up. Heavens will pass away. The, the works that are done on the earth will be exposed. And so Peter says, verse 12, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter is using judgment language here. Fire, it indicates where the world is, is headed. What is Peter doing? He is describing for us what is indescribable. An event we've never experienced. So the prophet Isaiah, he, he writes of the, the mountains melting when the Lord manifests himself. I think that the fire here could mean purification of the world. It, it certainly means an upending of the world order. We thought about this last week. There's going to be continuity and, and discontinuity. But what is very clear is that what you see with your eyes, it will not last. All of these things are to be dissolved the heavens, the heavenly bodies, the earth. Everything that we see that looks so permanent has an end date the day of the Lord. I want you to look outside that window everybody look out the window do you really believe that that sky is going to be dissolved you see it every day you take it for granted it has such constancy peter says it's temporary remember that peter wrote this letter in prison under the power of rome The eternal city, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, they were all empires thought to be indestructible in their day. They're gone. Same is true today, isn't it? I imagine that not one person who boarded the Titanic ever thought that the ship that was thought to be unsinkable would ever sink. None of us would have imagined only a few years ago that a virus would shut down economies and airports and borders and sports leagues. Why is it with temporariness all around us, do we live as if our lives will go on forever? Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? How now Shall we live? Striking how the world reacts when someone comes along and gives us the latest prediction of the apocalypse. So in the year 2000, which I am painfully aware some of you weren't alive for, there was a threat of a worldwide computer disaster Because the coding in computers, believe it or not, was set up such that uh, they read the final two numbers of years, so like 98 became 99. They weren't set up for the the four numbers. So when 99 hit 0 it wasn't clear if the computers were going to read that and there would be global catastrophe. Thankfully, they did get it worked out. But people prepared, people panicked for what was called y 2 You could could buy a Y2K preparation kit. Don't laugh. A flashlight, because the electric grids worldwide were thought to possibly crash. Some of these flashlights had radios on them so that you could hear communication. Why is it when the world believes an apocalypse is coming that the world and even Christians do the most bizarre things things. What does the apostle Peter say to do in light of the fact that the heavenly bodies are about to be dissolved, destroyed? Does he tell you to panic? Does he tell you to buy a preparation kit? No. He says, live lives of holiness, godliness. Live for what? Last. I was thinking of Peter's first letter. As I was thinking through this, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. That's what he writes. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He then went on to say, love one another, show hospitality. There's no call to panic. He calls us to godliness. Eschatology affects ethics. And eschatology, the... Understanding of last things is immensely practical. What's this big takeaway that the the world will come to an end? I think Michael Green says it well. A man's character is the only thing he can take out of this life with him. Live in pursuit of holiness and godliness. Now, what does that look like? It means becoming increasingly like Jesus less like the world. That's what worldliness is. There's David Wells, a teacher, writes, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Isn't that the world we live in? Sin is normal. Righteousness is strange. What did Peter tell us at the beginning of this letter? He told us by God's divine power, he's given us everything we need for life, And godliness. So make every effort. Be diligent. Add to your faith virtue and virtue, kindness, and goodness. In other words, make every effort to be godly. And he's ending this letter saying, be diligent to do the same. He's not calling us to something God hasn't given us the power to carry out. So as this unjust war against Ukraine carries on, One of the great needs of President Zelensky that he's making known to the world is they can't wage war. They cannot defend themselves against the Russians without actual equipment. And what's going on? The different nations and leaders are debating whether to give weapons to the Ukrainians. God is not like that. As we wage war against the world and the flesh and the devil, God, by his divine power, gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. You, Christian, can pursue holiness and godliness because God pursued you. He's empowered you. Do you want to change? We all do in different ways. What do you need? You need power. And God has given you power in Christ. So if you're in Christ, do not Think of this call to live a life of holiness and godliness as impossible. There's a life that will kill your joy. God's holiness means he's devoted to his own triune person. Because there's nothing more worthy or better for God to be devoted to, to be centered on. And God overflows with joy in his person. So this call to holiness is a call to God devotion, a call to joy, happiness, joy anchored in the triune God, the one being who can satisfy you constantly, a place for your soul to be anchored in this world that changes so fast. In view of the end, pursue your joy by pursuing God. Oh, beloved, because you know the end, your life will look strange in the present. It means your joys, your loves, your aims, your money, your time, all of it will be different, spent differently in the present because you're different. We're these strange people that are living this temporary life in view of an eternal life that's coming in view of the end live lives marked by holiness and godliness. Now, I started thinking about you as I was working on this sermon, and I was just overwhelmed by the ways I see that in this body and have been encouraged and helped. I want to tell you a few. A few ways I see this marking our body. First, how many of you are marked, marked by a deep concern for the eternal state and destiny of those around you. That is evidence of God's power. That's evidence that you understand what Peter is saying. People will last longer than the heavenly bodies. People are eternal. The heavenly bodies, they're not. Second, I think in line with that, I see the way you love each other. There is no earthly explanation for the way you love each other, how you serve each other, how you care in the most practical ways, how you intertwine your lives. It's what makes this point and every year in this place so hard. Different people leave from here that we love. But that will make eternity that much sweeter. I think we're fortunate as a small body that we have such a large number of people who leave this place explicitly for the sake of the gospel. Vinny and Nagata, Katie, the Lauders. I mean, I could just keep going. I will. Some of you stay here for the sake of the gospel. That's why you're here. You could go somewhere else. But you've stayed and you're plodding along faithfully in the place and the position the Lord has given you. What? evidence you're living this kind of life. Doesn't it feel so ordinary? Trust that the Lord uses ordinary faithfulness for extraordinary ends over time. Don't give up. What you're living for here is eternal. So we praise God for those who go as painful as it is. We praise God for those who stay. We need both. Praise God For the ways he's working in you for witness. And then, third, I I see so clearly that your lives are not marked by what marks so many lives in this country. You've not come here to use this country for your kingdom, for yourself. You're giving yourself away for the good of others, for God's kingdom. That's evidence of God's power and grace. Keep going. You know the end. You're living for what lasts. Press on. And do this by being a people who wait. Verse 12: A godly and holy life is one marked by this waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, this great day on which the heavens are set on fire and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn. So, waiting biblically is not passive, it's active it's anticipatory. We're looking forward to the coming day of God. This day when Christ returns, when God the Father brings all of his purposes for history to their end. What does me Peter mean by the hastening of the coming of this day? I think he means what he says. We should never confuse the fact that God is sovereign with any idea that what we do doesn't matter. So I think this gives us great encouragement and motivation. Does God know when the final day, the deadline will be? Yes. Has he purposed and planned everything according to the counsel of his will, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1? Yes. And yet in his wisdom and sovereignty, God has ordained means. So we, by living lives of godliness, remarkably, that matters for the hastening of the coming day of God. Now, what weight that adds to your prayers? Your prayers for God's kingdom to come. What weight that adds to your evangelizing You're making Christ known. What weight that adds to your obedience or to your disobedience. It's an encouragement in your own personal struggle against sin. I think this is another reason the cosmic powers war against you in the fight for holiness. Somehow, in God's economy, your pursuit of godliness is used to hasten the end. So one very practical takeaway, your private battles are not truly private. They're taking place on this grand stage in this grand drama of God's cosmic work. And it matters in the outworking of this plot. So brothers and sisters, live holy lives, godly lives so that by your waiting, you hasten the day. Let's help each other. In this, today, tomorrow, the day after that, if the Lord gives it, make decisions. You'll be happy you made one million years from now. That's the perspective. By waiting faithfully, you hasten the coming day of God. We're not just gonna see the world, the heavenly bodies dissolved According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're the people who are staking everything on the fact that God will keep his word. One pastor said, we will never be confident in God's future promises unless we take the time to recount his fulfilled promises. God ever failed on his word? Ever? He hasn't. He keeps his word. Peter is giving you massive truth to wait your whole life in anticipation of. This is massive truth that undergirds your own fight for holiness and godliness. Don't you feel how Fallen, how broken our world is. Rejoice in hope. Wait in faith. Because God is going to, by His power, create a new world. Righteousness will dwell there. It's summer. A number of us are looking forward to vacation or maybe the, the end of school. I think the anticipation of that joy is very much part of your total joy. I bet some of you have countdowns in your houses, or maybe in your own mind, until you leave or when school ends. But that anticipation is looming over everything in your mind. The day comes that you're looking forward to. You enjoy it, hopefully, but it does come to an end. It always does doesn't last we always have to go back to what once was this new world will never end it will never disappoint us righteousness will dwell there evil gone evildoers nowhere to be found we live we pursue these holy and godly lives because we will inherit. We're going to walk into a world in which God is all in all. Nothing to oppose him. Can you imagine this kind of world? Complete righteousness. No evil, no injustice, no strife or war between nations. No difficulties with visas. A world filled with the one people of God who possess the same spirit, living before God without any fear. Oh, that kind of imagining helps your waiting. You're anticipating. Don't live by what you feel. Live by what you know, what you know. You know the end is coming, and God will be faithful. We're not preparing for some shadowy afterlife. We are preparing for life to be lived in a way, in a realm that we can't even fathom. What you see is going to be dissolved. Don't live for what will pass. Live for what lasts. Second, live for the Lord's coming. Live for the Lord's coming. Verses 14 through 18. That's how Peter was living his final days. It's how Peter tells us to live in these final days. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without splot or blemish and at peace. To be found by him. Christ is going to find us. This world is not just headed for renewal. This world is headed... On a collision course for a person. We will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He will find us, all of his people, through all time and places. We will see him. He will see us. And so, Peter, in view of that, just as in chapter one, he called us to be diligent to confirm our election. Here again at the end, he's saying it again be diligent. You know the false teachers were diligent. They were diligent to live lives that satisfied their sinful desires. So what separates the Christian from the one who's not a Christian is not that one is diligent and the other is not. They're diligent about different things. Be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Now, your immediate response, if you're a Christian would be, that's what I am. And you're right. Because of the righteousness of Christ, you are spotless. You have no blemish. Peace with God. But Peter here is exhorting us to live a different kind of life. Not like the false teachers, who he wrote in chapter 2, are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. We're preparing for, we're being prepared for the Lord's coming when we are presented to our Savior as his Bride. Peter is saying, be diligent to become who you are. Live a life that's undefiled, without spot or blemish. Now, if you pursue that, just that, on its own, it will not gain you interest into the kingdom of Christ. It can prove that you are in Christ, can vindicate what you confess. It's fair to say none of us could ever say our Christian lives have been perfect. We are spotless, without blemish. But the Christian life is the repenting life. You know, your Savior is never surprised by you, never ashamed of you. When you're surprised by yourself, ashamed of yourself, the cross assures you of that. The cross says to you that you can boldly, confidently go to Christ with that sin Because he will cover your sin with his righteousness. And Peter is exhorting us to this because he's just told us just above this passage that the full exposure of everything is coming. One teacher said the exposure will bring disclosure. Be diligent. Be found without a spot or blemish. And at peace. Christian is objectively at peace with God. We live faithfully. It means that our consciences are at peace. We must be at peace with each other. In view of the Lord's coming, be diligent in this way. And verse 15, count the Lord's patience as salvation. And we saw last week that Peter just said this. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So what does it mean to count his patience as salvation? It means that his patience is exercised for the sake of salvation. God is moving history to his purposed end, and he's not in a hurry about it. God is, as one teacher said, moving through history with majestic leisureliness. I do love that image. Makes us think of a king... Not worried, unthreatened, walking through his domain. This is the way God patiently works out his purposes in the world. Count this present time, not as those who scoff do, as evidence he won't come, but as opportunity for salvation in Christ. I don't want to leave this book without urging you to consider the coming of Christ, to consider his kindness in delay. So many ways to understand even these times that we're living in, economic difficulty, wars, uncertainty. But underneath all of that ultimately is that these are the times of God's patience. God would be good and free to judge now, but he's patient. He began the world by the power of his word. He created the world by the power of his word. And what has man done? Man has lived in God's good world and man has believed a lesser word than the good word of God, believing the word of a snake over the word of the triune God who created the world. God's word is not abstract. God's word mysteriously has taken on flesh. God's son has come into this world. Jesus has made the Father known to the world. In the middle of the world story, God came into the world. And strangely, we rejected God's Son. He lived His life for sinners. He died for sinners. He was raised for sinners. He reigns in heaven. Even now, the Truth of the gospel of Christianity is not a private help. It's a public truth to which the world is accountable. And now Christ reigns patiently that you might come to salvation. Have you bowed your knee to Christ? Come to him by faith. Take seriously his patience. Take seriously his certain coming. I'd hope that if you're not sure of that, you talk to me or a friend that brought you here. Be diligent about that. Count the Lord's patience as salvation. Peter is closing this letter and then seemingly out of nowhere, he brings in the apostle Paul. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Now, I do want you to see the power of the gospel here. This is a brief remark. Paul and Peter had known each other, and they had known conflict in the gospel, over the gospel. We know from Galatians 2, from Paul, he writes, I opposed Peter to his face. Peter was fearing circumcision party who were saying that Gentiles needed to be like Jews in order to be like the people of God. And Paul opposed Peter because the gospel was at stake. No fear of man in Paul. He reasoned that a broken relationship was a better consequence than a broken gospel. But things didn't stay that way. Somewhere along the way, they reconciled. God's grace to Peter. God's grace in reconciliation and restoration. God's grace behind those words, our beloved brother, Paul. Gospel reconciles us to God. It reconciles us to each other. You know, Paul didn't sin by rebuking Peter, but because of Peter's sin, specifically fear of man, his relationship was temporarily broken with Paul. And here at the end of his life, they're at peace. Our dear beloved brother Paul, because the gospel gives us grace and God's spirit ensured that Paul wrote according to wisdom. This means Paul was giving divine revelation under divine inspiration, not human wisdom. Paul wrote in this way, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So Peter's saying, Paul taught you to live in these ways as well. Now, I think Peter here in verse 16 also makes the concession that has encouraged every Bible reader, teacher, and preacher ever since. Paul's letters has things in them that are hard to understand. I agree with that completely. But that difficulty, Peter says, the ignorant and the unstable are twisting to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. So notice a few things. Here, the false teachers are twisting, and there's that word destruction again. Peter's used this word. It's it's a judgment word. It's, It's where the false teachers are headed for destruction. They twist it for their own destruction. Make sure they do not twist it for yours. So to live for the coming of the Lord means you must live by being on guard. There are people who try to pervert what is good. And we don't know exactly what Peter is referring to in Paul's letters. Uh, We see in some of his letters that at times his teaching on grace was distorted, such that people said if you believe in grace, you can live or sin however you want. Some said, because of what Paul taught on the resurrection of the believer with Christ, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Whatever it was, they were twisting it. Be on guard. Paul taught our salvation means that we will not want to sin, not that we can sin. True conversion means sin will be your enemy, not your friend. True conversion means you have new affections. You delight in God. You're not bored with the things of God. You're not uninterested in God. Are you converted? Converted to God? Be on guard against those who might twist that or make it less than it really is. They twisted it what Paul wrote. Peter says, as they do the other scriptures. So at this point in the church, Peter understood that what Paul wrote, whatever letters the church had, were scripture. It was binding. It was authoritative. Be on guard. People twist the scriptures. It was true then, and isn't it true now? And so what's the implication? Verse 17. Therefore, because you know all this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You know it beforehand. You, you could read that take care as be on guard. If you're reading the NIV, that's what it says. Be on your guard because there are those who want you to become unstable like they are. Now, are you vulnerable to false teaching? How do you know if you are? Do you know the true gospel? Do you know basic doctrine? Do pastors know you? Can speak into your life? What steps do you need to take to become stable in the Lord? There's an intentionality. There's a laser-like focus that should mark the life of the Christian because the Christian knows the stakes and what is at stake? And not every teacher has your best interest in mind. They want to lessen your confidence in the scriptures. They want to lessen your confidence and your joy in God. Be on guard. Beloved, that is what we aim to do for each other in this body. In membership, we aim to guard each other to protect our faith and our joy in Christ from the deceit of sin, to guard each other in view of this day that is coming. So that's one of the joys. It's one of the responsibilities of membership to guard each other like you do in a family. So when I was growing up, my brothers and I would fight. We would have fights, we would get into arguments. But if someone messed with me or with one of my brothers outside of our home, No one looked out for me and I for them like we did for each other. It's what we're doing for each other as a body. We're looking out for each other. We're guarding each other. Paul doesn't just say, or Peter doesn't just say, be on guard, but verse 18, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember how Peter began the letter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. That's how he's ending it. Grow, guard and grow. Grow in grace and knowledge, not just about Jesus, in knowing Jesus. It should be the ambition of our lives and each other to guard and grow. It's summer. So many of you will travel. You'll be out of your routines. And it's so easy when you're out of the routine to let your guard down to not prioritize your discipleship of Jesus, to simply neglect growth. Beloved, see spiritual disciplines as your friends, as God's intentionally given grace to you to grow you. And don't just be concerned for your growth. Be concerned for others. Think about those who have helped you to grow in the faith, who took time to help you move from where you were to where you are. What could you do for others in that way? Do you come here just to get? Never considering how you could give. Guard and grow. Isn't that what Peter's doing? Here's a man who's so transformed by what he knows to be true of the end. He lives differently in the present who knows his end is coming but is confident that victory is just around the corner? He's like a sports fan in one sense who's watching a game in which he knows the final score. He knows the truth. And so he has this otherworldly kind of confidence that makes no sense in the present. Only someone with that kind of confidence can write this letter, unconcerned for himself, totally concerned for others. And that should mark the flavor of our lives. We don't know the what's or the how's between now and then, but we do know the end. And we live differently in view of it. This morning is a kind of an end. The last time for a while at least, I will preach to to you here. And for some of you, this is the last service that you'll have with us. Brothers and sisters, keep going. Live for what lasts. Live lives that will not make sense, that do not add up according to the values of this world, because you know another world is coming. Pursue godliness. Wait. Hasten. Be diligent to be without blemish, at peace. Guard and grow. This world will dissolve. This is the life that will last. This is the life that will found, be found to have brought glory to Christ when he finds you. This is the life. And in the end, will prove to be wise. May the Lord hasten that day. To him be the glory. Both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.